Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we thought Christmas is coming up and Christmas means family. And what better thing to talk about family with than animated movies. So we're going to be talking animated movies today. And to help us out, we brought on a guest, Allison. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and Allison, we know you from from your blog. Do you want to say anything about your about your movie blog for the listeners? Sure. Um, I've been running a movie blog called The Best Picture Project on WordPress, and I started that twelve years ago, I believe. And uh, I started watching every single movie nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars, which is a lot, a long list. So uh, <laughs> it's a long list. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. I've got maybe seven I haven't seen. Anyway, they're all on my blog and I've reviewed most of them. And, you know, after I got through most of those, I focused a lot on animated movies and horror movies, as you do. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> those years is a good run. And those are the two extremes of like film genre. And they can cross over, but like animated you know, films, fun for the whole family. And horror films, fun for the whole family if your family's hardcore and awesome. <laughs> Yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we, uh, and I think with our topic today, we decided to focus more on like, you know, more on the family side of animation, right? So no grave of the fireflies today. No, I deliberately <laughs> like made that. a point to choose. I didn't necessarily approach it as like family movies, but I did approach it as like things I would have watched when I was a kid. And I even tried to think about it in terms of like films that I have um memories connected to christmas with the film even if the mm-hmm. only one of them is a full-on christmas movie the other is a winter movie um but both are films that like when i would have been you know off for school for two weeks one of them is just one i would have watched all the time because you know you got two weeks off and eventually you're just watching cartoons and the other is one that i discovered around the season so nice yeah so allison are you what did you what were your what was your thought process when you were picking the movies you went through? Uh, well, when you just, it was very broad when you said animation, I was like, that does not narrow it down, but because <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw your, uh, some titles of the other ones and I was like, your other podcasts. And I was like, oh, animation is so broad, but I had fun. Yeah, we I went pretty like, broad. <laughs> yeah. I had like about a dozen movies that I was racking my brain about. And I said, okay, I want to do something old and something new. So kind of nice. spread it across the board nice yeah and i looking at our list we we did stay pretty western with this one which is um yeah not a lot of like japanese animation or anything which is surprising because mm-hmm. well i know i'm i can i'm a pretty big fan of ghibli and i know you are too dan uh allison what about you are you are you into like the miyazaki films or anything a little bit yeah I mean, honestly, I grew up on a lot of Disney, and so I picked one Disney film. Okay, only one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I love animation throughout all of its genres, from you know Bambi to Sausage Party, all and everything in between. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I, in terms of similarly, like I, because I was choosing stuff that I saw when I was like a kid, I didn't start to see like the great anime films until I was. I think at least 16, 17 started to get into that world. Um, And the anime that I was exposed to as a kid was like Dragon Ball Z and things like that. It was more TV 
And technically, there are many Dragon Ball Z movies, but most of them are not very good. Um, so the new ones I hear are actually pretty solid, but the ones that I would have seen at the time were not. So that kind of ruled those out pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, for me, the moments I picked, I wanted to like focus on more of the visual animation itself. So, and I guess with that, the two moments I picked are ones that stood out to me. Um, I mean, there are. Like, I was thinking of picking your name, which I don't think you've seen, Dan. No, still haven't. And But the moment wasn't really, like, based in the animation that I want to talk about, so I'll save that for another day. Fair. I feel like we've talked about animated movies before, not as, like, a specific yeah. topic, but I don't remember which ones, but... Oh, we brought up, like, Wally and... Mm. Heavy metal. <laughs> I, that's true. I did talk about my boy. And I'm assuming I talked about some anime at some point. I can't remember for sure, but I feel like I did. Um, I feel like you did. I think, you, I think you've talked about Akira before. Yes, I did. When we did opening scenes and I talked yeah. about how it opened with like a nuclear detonation, mm-hmm. um, which the energy I'm going with today is <laughs> very much the opposite, <laughs> um, which maybe hey. is a good place to segue into first pick yeah let's start it off let's go all righty so bit of preamble as listeners will know i've uh talked a lot of smack about the concept of the christmas movie in our show and uh how i generally do not regard the christmas movie with a great deal of respect but there is one like non-edgelord ironic christmas movie that i wholeheartedly love and that is the 1982 animated short film the snowman which was made for channel 4 tv so it's I guess somewhat questionable in terms of film, but it was nominated for an Academy Award. So I think it counts. Um, For anyone who hasn't seen the film, it's a very simple story. It's basically like a riff on the Frosty the Snowman tale. It's little boy makes snowman. It comes to life. They have a magical little adventure. And that's the movie. On paper, this is not necessarily all that exceptional. But what makes it special are its style. For one, it's told it's an adaptation of a picture book by Raymond Briggs and it translates that art style to film pretty seamlessly it very much feels like a storybook picture book brought to life on film it's got very sort of broad brush stroke uh, art design and uh, very simple child-friendly designs and then the other key piece is that like the book there's no dialogue there's no actual speaking it's all told with music a very small selection of sound effects and one song that has lyrics in it. Um, And it's beautiful. Um, I saw, this wasn't a Christmas film that I watched all the time when I was a kid. In fact, I might've only seen it once until I got a little bit older, but I distinctly remember it was between the ages of like maybe nine to 12, which is kind of a broad range, but somewhere in that area. And my family was up in Northern Ontario visiting extended relatives there's not much to do in the town of Northern Ontario where my family is from. So I remember at a certain point just being in my Nana's house watching TV and just various Christmas specials are on because it's Christmas time. And this one came on and I had no context for it or what it was. And even though it didn't necessarily become something I rewatched all the time, in large part because it's pre, you know, mainstream Internet. So you can't just watch the film on YouTube like you can now. So unless it was on TV, I had no way of seeing it. But it left an impression and it really sort of wedged its way into my memories. And when I got older and kind of rediscovered it, it brought a lot of memory back. But um, 
anyway, it's a lot of rambling. The moment I want to talk about, once the boy has made his snowman and uh, the snowman has come to life and they start having their, themselves some fun, they go inside the boy's house and they're kind of playing around with different objects. And the main moment that I want to talk about is at one point they go upstairs to the parents' bedroom and the parents are asleep. And the snowman starts playing with different objects that belong to the parents. So he sees there's some dentures in a cup. He puts them in his mouth and has a laugh about that. Then there's uh, he puts on some makeup and puts on the sort of like very nice, fancy feminine hat, puts on suspenders with uh, or some pants with like the suspenders going over and puts on a tie. This sort of making fun of like adult things and having a laugh about it. And he and the kid kind of bond over that. And I like this for a couple different reasons. One, I think in terms of the gimmick of no dialogue, this is a really good way of communicating both between the characters. Uh, there's a way for them to sort of bond and grow closer without having to say anything to each other. And also for the audience, because it didn't really dawn on me when I was a kid, but thinking about it now, it's like, it's kind of amazing that it's like a half hour silent film made for little kids. It was released in the 80s. I would have seen it in the early 2000s. And like, it it works. You know, it's 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 a little bit more, I don't know, sort of on the art film end of things than other animated Christmas specials for children, but it is really accessible. And I think it's pretty amazing that a movie made for little kids in a silent film style is as effective as it is. And I think a scene like this is crucial to why, because you don't need dialogue to translate the idea of like making fun of adult things to a kid. A kid just intuitively gets it. Um, so it's a fun moment in isolation. But it's how the scene ends up playing into the movie's themes that I think really makes it crucial because, and this is where I'm going to get into spoilers, although it's a snowman story, there's really only one way they can end. And if this movie, <laughs> if this movie is famous for anything, it's its ending where after the snowman flies the boy to the North Pole and they have a party with other snowman and Santa Claus, which is a side note, is awesome. They fly back. You know, the snowman goes back to his position where he was built and the boy starts to leave and he runs back and gives him a hug. And it's very nice. Goes to sleep. The next morning, the boy wakes up. He's all excited. He, you know, throws his clothes back on. He runs out the door, excited to see his snowman friend. And you see his face kind of drop. And then it cuts to reverse angle. And the snowman's just like a melted pile of snow and clumps. And the kid pulls out his scarf. And then the camera pulls back and the credits start rolling. It's the most like suddenly sad and crutching end to a children's special like imaginable. Um, and I like that one because it's it's frankly just really bold. And I love how willing it is to just sit with that sort of really crushing sadness. But also because I do think it's important thematically and in tying into this moment of playing with the adult things. The film is really about growing up. And the sudden realization where one day you wake up and you're not a kid anymore. And I love the way it handles that where it's like it's so sudden and abrupt where you have this early moment of playing with adult things. And it's like this sort of the world of adults is a world for like silliness and mockery. And even earlier in the film, the parents are, you know, they're not like being authoritarian, but they are disciplining the kid in various ways. They're telling him to clean up his, his feet at points. They're putting snow like a hat and mitts on him before he goes outside. They're you know, the mom's giving him the gears when he throws a snowball at the window. There's this sort of world of adult and rules that is like very unappealing to a kid and a subject to be made fun of. And then at the end is just this sudden moment of like childhood wonder is kind of gone. And not in a way that's like really sort of dark or overbearing. It's just, it's very natural. Like there's no big dramatic swelling crying scene. He just goes out and the snowman's gone and that's it. And I just love the way that this moment, uh, 
is introduced in a very light and silly way and is sort of just a nice moment for building the story and the relationship between these characters and a fun moment for the audience and then gets recontextualized by the end to be something a little bit more thoughtful and sort of this rumination on you know transitioning into adulthood in a very simple small minor way that you don't really think about and certainly not when you're a kid the first time you see it but more you rewatch it and more I've rewatched as I get older it stands out as being um a thoughtful movie about ending childhood and slowly transitioning into adulthood so so that's my moment nice i'll be honest i had no idea this movie existed (laughs) really until you mentioned it no idea so luckily i found it i think amazon prime is has it actually Mm. which is kind of cool so i was able to watch it um which intro do they have who's doing the intro that's a good question i have no idea because in the there's other versions where it's David Bowie because when they played it in America, they're like, we need a star. And so David Bowie does oh. it because Bowie was a fan of the author's other book. Um, I think if it was David Bowie, I would have recognized okay. it as David. I don't think I did. It probably is Raymond Briggs then, who's the author, who's just, okay. which I'm actually, I'm, I totally forgot about this, but yeah, that's also important. Like the movie starts with him narrating about when I was a child and the, you know, there was a magical snowfall and the day I met the snowman, like it opens by being about an old man reminiscing on his childhood. And he kind of gets so caught up in the magic of, you know, the living snowman who flies you to the North pole. <laughs> Cannot stress enough how cool that is. You forget this is like an old man reminiscing. So when you get back to the end, it is a genuine, like sort of gut punch surprise, but it also, it's appropriate for what's been set up of this idea of like, you know, that period of life being suddenly over anyway sorry i didn't mean to cut you off no that's good allison have you have you seen this movie did you know anything about it yeah i mean uh i had forgotten about it for about 20 years and then when i saw the list of movies i was like okay i gotta find this so i find this on youtube and it's been 20 years since i've seen it and when i saw it i was a kid in the 90s it was on tv you know and it was not hd it was a you know probably on a local channel, kind of snowy and looking a mess. But when I, you know, I'm just sitting at home watching this on YouTube, remembering how I felt as a kid watching this 20 years ago. And like the, I remember the song and that like just brought back weird nostalgia. And I like was about to cry just listening to this. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you for bringing this back. I couldn't, I I haven't, you know, it hasn't been in my memory for 20 years and you brought it right back. So thank you. I'm so glad. Yeah. <laughs> Ian, wow. did you like this movie? You know what? I really did. I the animation, like there's something just really classic about the animation style and like timeless about it. Mm-hmm. And it is very storybookish. And I, I really like that. It kind of reminded me of sorry, Allison, this is gonna be very Canadiana right now, but hockey sweater cartoon, right? The um Canadians out there know what I'm talking about, but like the mm-hmm. the uh, Montreal Canadiens, and then the one kid gets a Toronto Maple Leaf shirt, and it's like this old CBC cartoon that kind of I kind of reminded me of that kind of style, just you know a little shaky, little jittery, but um, yes, that's little, a crucial part too, the jittery. Yeah, and it's um, but something just fairly classic and comfortable about the animation style. That I yeah. like quite a bit. And there's a warmness to it. Like there's a mm-hmm. there's such a comfort. Um 
because it is it's it's a strange little film like it's the fact that there's no dialogue the fact that it's so it's so sparse in its narrative there's a lot of detail but like you know to describe it like not a lot happens like it has such a it's it's a strange little movie but because of the way it's drawn and because of the way the characters move to like with that jitteriness like there's the fact that it isn't perfect that it is a little bit I don't want to say janky but there's a sort of there's a rough quality to it makes it more I don't know it makes it feel more like cozy yeah it's surprising that you don't see it around the holidays more often like that some some tv stations just not like hey let's pull out this this gem that we've got and they're it's just not like it's too sad i guess maybe i mean mm. it is it's funny though because like i saw it as a kid and i i must have liked it to some degree like it left like i said a really big impression but it wasn't like like my favorite christmas thing i don't think i probably would have seen it again until i don't know my 20s like it was a long time and a lot of you know and in part because like in some ways like as a kid it's and especially like the kind of kid I was who was like into violent action stories, it was easier to sort of gravitate towards, which will come up in my next pick, gravitate to like other things instead. And there's in some ways it's it's the kind of film that adults like more than kids, I think, because it is so elegant and simple Maybe. and so um so dignified. Like that's the other thing that stands out. I find like a lot of kids media that you go back to as an adult even when it's like good like classic disney films would be a good example whenever like humor comes around not all the time but often there's like a there's sort of like a i don't know about a cringe element but it's like the humor is not for me it's for children and there's sort of an immaturity to it or like an annoying quality now that i'm older but because there's none of that in this film there's no there's no action in a sort of like obvious way there's excitement but it's in a very sort of whimsical and romantic and magical way not in a you know, punch the bad guy away. Um, I don't know. It kind of reminds me of like when people talk about Mr. Rogers and it's like this idea that like, it almost feels like something parents want their kids to like more than necessarily the kids really like. Obviously all kids are different, but I don't know. There's a there's sort of a platonic ideal of what like a kid's movie Christmas special can be that uh, is kind of almost easy to underappreciate when you're actually a kid. Yeah, that's fair. I think it kind of feels like a a hand knit sweater. Does that make sense? I mean, I equated it rather than like a brand new shiny toy. It's like a hand knit sweater. It's warm. It's cozy. It's a, in your words, it's a little janky, a little not perfect. So, mm. I like that style though. Yeah, very Christmassy. And that's a good metaphor because like the the hand knit Christmas sweater is the thing you kind of take for granted when you're nine. Mm-hmm. You're like, I wanted a Game Boy. But <laughs> <laughs> you get older and those things sort of have more resonance and and power that you know you weren't totally ignorant of when you were a kid but it's those come more to the to the forefront when you're when you're older and you can appreciate those things more um and again like the fact that this starts with i think as a kid you like this this living snowman you like the flying sequence you like that it looks pretty but the stuff about it being like the old man narrating who opens it and the sort of wistful remembrance and then versus you know and again tying into my moment of like playing with these adult things this idea of like reminiscing on how adulthood used to look to you and then being an adult and kind of acknowledging that the magical time of being a child is pretty definitively over um Although I should point out, because I keep saying that, and I feel like I'm making this sound like the most depressing film ever made. (laughs) 
I should point out, I think one of the things that makes the film so successful is as sort of sudden and crushing as the ending is, there is a, there's a certain like maturity in the way that it treats the sort of lost wonder of childhood in the sense of it being, it is gone, but it doesn't lose any of its power because of that. Like those, those memories, those feelings are just as valid and it is just as worth it for them having to have happened at all. Um, that's worth more than if they had never existed. So even if they're still gone, you can still hold on to the memories of them. And I think the film, again, in its very sort of small and uh, uh, quiet way, gets to that feeling really effectively. And in a way, is really appropriate for Christmas specifically, because I find that like when you're a kid, there's a sort of people talk about like the magic of Christmas. And when you're a kid, a lot of that is like you don't have to go to school. You get time off you get to vacation, you get to see family and get to go to all these like dinners and things like that. You get presents and who doesn't love presents. And then as you get older, maybe Christmas is still fun. Maybe Christmas is still something you look forward to, but it doesn't, it's not magical anymore. You know, you don't get as much time off as you used to, even as early as being like still in school, but being like a high school student. Like I remember in high school, Christmas break, I was still working on like assignments. I was still studying for, you know, exams or prepping for next semesters, you know, and the older you get, the more responsibilities you have to take on. You don't just get to go to Christmas parties and events. You have to help organize and facilitate these things. It's still fun, but it's not just magic that happens anymore. It's work, and you have to do the work to it. To say nothing of, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the work that comes with winter of like, you don't go out and make a snowman. You go out and shovel the driveway. You know, you brush off your car. Um, so I think the the Christmas season is a really sort of, prime source for feelings of growing up and wistful remembrance of how you used to feel about certain events and so that narrative is really perfect and kind of for for a christmas special and it also means that the snowman avoids the obvious christmas special tropes of being about like about the magic of christmas or it's about rekindling your belief which again to me are loathsome concepts that i have no use for but a movie about reckoning with the fact that your childhood is over, but it still has value all the same. I can get behind that. And I like how you talked about um, this scene in particular. <laughs> We've kind of moved away from the moment, but I do like the moment, especially as the, as a good example of just visual storytelling, because when you decide that you're going to set out and make a silent movie, um, whatever the reason might be, maybe they just didn't want to deal with voice actors. Maybe they just, maybe they actually felt it fit the tone of the storybook more, but the book has no writing. Like it's all pictures. Oh, well that would make a lot of sense then. So it, it really is, you really got to find ways to do that, right? You have to find little stories within the story to keep, to keep them engaged. And the, yeah, the moment in the parents' bedroom, is a really good example of that. And it's not like, it's not like a big story arc. Like here's the beginning, here's the middle, here's the end. It's just like little vignettes um, that just grab your attention. Cause you're like, okay, what's he going to play with next? Oh, okay. So, oh, he's mm -hmm. going into the closet. What's going to happen now? And it, and it's just fun. Yeah. 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 And doubly so because it's, it's children you have to translate this to who are going to have one, like sm smaller attention spans, but two, less things they can relate to in terms of like telling a story because their experiences are just more narrow um so again focusing it on these things of like 
playing with adult things I think is just such a universal thing as a kid the idea of like adult clothes being weird and like like I remember too like I think part of the reason I associate this with like grand grandparents and extended family is because of like the dentures and the glass which is like as a kid if you have a relative <laughs> and you see that it is like it's bizarre like why is there teeth in a cup like it's so it's such a strange you know thing to get your head around so yeah having that moment where it's like you can play with these things is all of a sudden it's so like immediately uh clear so and also there's a little bit of tension because you're like i don't know if it's just what you're expecting from other movies but when they go into the parents room you're expecting like something really bad to happen and the parents wake up but mm-hmm. they play it a little lighter and that's there's something nice about that too mm-hmm. yeah. that's the other thing like there's no i feel like roger ebert reviewing totoro where he was very much just like there's no violence it's just wonderful for children and there's something to this too where it's like there's no real threat there's no real danger like it is and you know i tend to like my children's media to have a little bit of edge in some degree or another um but there is something when when this can be done when this sort of level of wholesomeness can be done well it is really special um and i think this film is special so i'm glad i got to introduce it to you ian i had no idea yeah. that had no idea about it and reintroduce it to allison yeah thank you again <laughs> that's that's my uh my christmas gift to you both yeah there we go <laughs> so awesome uh allison why don't we send things over to you okay uh how about we start with my first pick uh i decided to go with bambi and it's a, you know it's got some winter scenes too we're not com- you know completely <laughs> off topic we're going in there anyway uh little intro bambi i mean Personally, Bambi was the first movie I ever saw at a movie theater. My mom took me when I was like three or four during its re-release. And I don't remember the experience, but I'm thankful for it. And, you know, it's, so it's, I've got a soft spot for that movie as, you know, a very little kid. And, uh, and it's, even though it's such a, a simple story, mostly known for its cute animals, I think it's a really great moment in early animation. Uh, it's from 1942, you know, the very early Disney days. And it's, uh, I think it's just a simple, wonderful film that conveys life in the forest. Anyway, so the scene I picked was the, uh, the, the first, the uh, end of the first meadow scene where man first appears in the forest. Anyway, so to set the scene up, it's, you know, if you haven't seen it, but who hasn't seen Bambi, no offense. Uh, it's Bambi's first real sorcerer interaction with the other deer, and he's uh, meeting uh, Faleen, his later mate. And anyway, he meets the older male deer for the first time, and they're jumping around. He's, he sees the, the great prince of the forest, his, you know, the, the big stag for the first time. And uh, as he's, you know, as we're kind of in awe of this, the stag, the big prince of the forest, there's something coming the scene shifts very suddenly and uh the uh the birds start flying overhead and all of a sudden bam the scene just turns to danger and uh what was once you know very soft pastoral greens and browns elements so it turns to bright orange and navy blues these deer just running past in the opposite direction just Everything was was once so slow and majestic. Now it's fast. It's, it's scary. It's it's a way that conveys this danger 
that only that in, in animation you have to use these colors as motion in such a at the time a very modern way and uh i just every time i see that even yeah i don't, I don't know how i felt when i was a real little kid seeing that but even as an adult seeing that my heart's is i mean something in me just fears senses this danger in like a primal way that i think only you know this quick change is this quick color change and everything can convey um anyway it's one of my i mean it's it's a very simple moment and it, you know and the, the bambi is separated from his mom for just a moment and he and the stag run away from the danger just in time and his mom everyone's everyone's safe at the end of this at the end of this scene for now we won't get into the next one <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's that's a great pick it's a great example of how they're able to like put you in the mindset of an actual wild animal, right? Where, because it, it's not like, you know, Bambi's not walking around in a t-shirt and, and like acting <laughs> like a person, like Bambi and the rest of the animals are, even though they talk and all that, but they're very much animals living in the wilderness. And that's something that's always been really cool about Bambi and kind of made it stand out from the other Disney films and yeah, the animation you're talking about does a great job as well, like making us think of what it must be like to be a deer that's constantly on edge like that. Right. I mean, putting us on the other side. Literally just a, a story of life in the forest and the only threat is man. And the scene shows the only threat coming. It's the first time danger happens in the forest. So I don't know. It's a really wonderful scene and just. And it I works. like how the way it works so well. And it's really punctuated. Like when, when Bambi is back with his mother and she actually just says, the only line that she says is man was in the forest or man is yes. in the forest and that's it. And there's so much like, there's something really haunting about the way she says it. And yeah. And it just, it's a good capper to that, to everything that you just said too. Mm -hmm. That's true. It, now I was it's watching, sorry. sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was I was watching some little Disney documentary about this a couple days ago, and I was like, they were you know going back and forth on oh we need to do this and you know make it more wordier. They're like, no, man is in the forest. That's mm -hmm. it. I mean, that's it. It's it's like I hate to do this metaphor, but man is like the shark in Jaws. You never see it, and that's what makes it so so frightening. You only see, you only hear gunshots. You only get that sense of foreboding and danger and fire later yeah yeah and it stands out especially in the realm of animated films and especially in the realm of disney films as that those canons develop in terms of how villainy is portrayed you know so many of disney's villains are like these sort of like deliciously evil embodiments of characters and that can often and that's not always a negative it can often be really fun um certainly there's a whole catalog of fantastic villains in the company's history probably more fantastic villains than there are heroes if we really get down to it um but especially too you think about animated films especially as they by the time you get to the 90s when they deal with like the evils of men encroaching on nature and it's very over the top to the point of being just farcical like you know the greedy industrious like they're gonna bulldoze the forest and build a sewage treatment plant like it's very like it's easy to roll your eyes up but the the way that bambi is so simple like they're not really characters they're like a force of of not nature i guess but a force of society and of humanity and like that 
you could argue it's a more simplistic portrayal technically, but it feels a lot more dignified and elegant. Like it's not, these characters aren't sort of just maliciously evil or monsters out to destroy. They just are. It, in a way, it reminds me actually a lot of the ending of The Snowman. It's sad, but it's not sad in like a big tragic way. It just is. And it's kind of a similar thing here. Like it's it's a horrible intervention and it's, you know, shattering for the characters. And the film does a brilliant job making that transition for us visually. But it isn't the coming of, you know, greedy, insidious, one-dimensional evil. It's it's It feels uh, a little bit more... Um, esoteric and abstract than that and i find that really that stands out um within the canon of disney and even at this time i think was already pretty unique and how just sort of simple and elegant it is and the film feels when you watch it it can feel or if you sort of were to read like a plot description of it it might seem sort of sparse compared to some of the later disney films or even some of the earlier films compared to pinocchio where like 200 things happen in every scene Oh, Geppetto got eaten by a whale while you were away on the donkey island. It's like, oh, <laughs> great googly moogly. Um, you know, Bambi as a plot is is a lot more simple, but to see it play out, it's so, it's, it's it feels very precise and elegant in it. And I think your moment gets to that really effectively. And and the point afterwards where Bambi's mom is just like, man was in the forest. It's all you need. Yeah, it's like this presence that's not supposed to be there. And everything that you pointed out about the animation just emphasizes that and it, it's it's a really good showcase of animators and not just like what they can show us on the screen but how they can set the mood and how they can um make us feel what they want us to feel where the and the expert animators can do that mm. i've always felt with animation it is even more important with all, in all storytelling but especially in animation to show and not tell less words you know i mean the snowman no words bambi the dialogue is very sparse at times, which is which works, which is great, because it's all about showing us and creating this tone, these you know emotions visually. I think it stands out you saying that when I think about the movie, I cannot remember what Bambi sounds like. I know he talks, but <laughs> I cannot remember what that voice is like it. it and you know, and I don't find I don't mean that as a diss against the voice actor or the dialogue. It's more just a reflection of how much of the movie's identity is constructed around its sense of visual poetry. But you, when you say Bambi, you have an image in your head right yep. in the moment. There you mm -hmm. go. I can picture him slipping on the ice very clearly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no one. Yeah, this, that. this was Disney, like at the height of their power. Like this is because this was just coming off Pinocchio and Fantasia. Like this was peak Disney, I would say. What, what would you guys think? I mean, they kind of they kind of find a, another peak again, like early nineties, but well, it was the end of this the golden is Disney age. As, like it was the yeah. last film before the war before shut down their features. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they don't come back till, I mean, they make the sort of, uh, I don't remember what the term is, but it's like basically like anthology films of like two sort of large short films smushed together. And then in 1950 Cinderella, they kind of rebuild again. Um, yeah. Yeah, certainly, like, it's not my favorite of the sort of golden age films, but it's, like, definitely second or maybe third. Fantasia is definitely number one. I love that yeah, movie. Yeah, Fantasia is my number one, too. But, I mean, I, this was, is up I, could, there. Not pick a, I could not pick a, the right moment for Fantasia. That's fair, <laughs> yeah. It's it's kind of, like, it, the whole thing is just, like, one giant, like, symphony, literally. Like, it's... Yes. You can't really pick anything out. Yeah. So, no, Bambi was a good pick. And I like... um 
I like the simplicity of it. And I think this is a imp- really important scene to do before the mother dies, because I think if if the man just came and shot the mother immediately, it's you're missing something there, right? Without mm-hmm. this buildup of this particular scene, I think having this scene makes that scene way more powerful. Yeah. And it makes build it... up to it, and it's a little bit of foreshadowing, yeah. know, showing us the danger before the danger actually personally affects you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a good setup, and it's also a good indicator that the violence that she suffers is not as horrible as it is for the characters. It's not abnormal. It's something that they deal with all the time. You know, earlier they have this scene, and it's a panicked moment, but it is something that they have to deal with, and they make it out okay, but then another time they don't. You know, and that gives it a very different tone. It's not, you know, to look at other Disney films where characters die, it's often like a very heightened tragedy. And this isn't. It's horrible, but it is like, it's very ordinary. Yeah, that's a good point. Great pig, Allison. I don't know. I mean, Bambi's mom dying, that's pretty high on the... (laughs) Oh, tragedy list it, it's in terms of its emotional I mean, effect. Bambi's mom and Mufasa. I mean, <laughs> but that's that's what I mean though. Like as emotional effect, it's gutting. But in terms of like like Mufasa getting like he's murdered by like his brother. Like it's a very like it, it's a very abnormal thing. It's like a, a horrific, unique thing. Whereas like a deer getting shot in the woods happens every day. You know, it's not. I'm not saying it's good. It's certainly life altering for the characters. But in the context of the world this is something that they deal with all the time and i find that an interesting it doesn't make it less you know affecting necessarily than other disney deaths or more affecting for that matter but i do think it's an interesting distinction between you know a character who's like murdered in cold blood versus like a hunter who kills an animal it it, i don't know it's just an interesting way of distinguishing this scene i think i get that yeah yeah i mean i would argue that not every day in Bambi's forest is a deer murdered. Probably not every day, but... Probably not every day. En- enough that at the beginning of the scene, Bambi's mom is definitely telling Bambi, stay back while she goes out to the meadow first. So, you know, everyone already knows the danger before it's ever there. So, mm-hmm. But it's not like they're having man's in the forest drills for Bambi. So. Maybe they should have. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. It's terrible to think. They've been better prepared. <laughs> Oh man, yeah, that was a good pick. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, should I move on to my first one? I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna counter the Disney with what was set up to be Disney's competition in like the late '90s, early 2000s, and never got there, which is DreamWorks Animation. Um, I'm gonna talk about The Prince of Egypt, which came out in 1998, and. Uh, which of course is the story of Moses. It's it's basically a retelling of the Moses story, the Ten Commandments story, uh, escaping from escaping from Egypt. And the moment I want to talk about is right after uh, the big moment, which is the parting of the Red Sea. Which is, um, you know, everybody knows the parting of the Red Sea. It's one of the oldest stories that's ever been passed down. <laughs> but and of course, it's very very famous in. Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments. That's a pretty famous visual image. And so they do it again here because you can't really leave that part of the story out and it's leading up to the climax of the movie. But what I want to point out is 
when after this happened, so now the Red Sea has been parted, and I kind of I kind of like this scene as a distinction from the from Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments, um, because it shows something that animation can do that visuals or you know regular story telling movie making can't do i mean until the influx of cgi um and so they're basically all the jewish people are escaping egypt and they're now traveling down this path through the red sea and it's i like i love the way that they do that because they kind of set up this atmosphere where it's even though this is a joyous moment and a miraculous moment there's a sense of danger happening because it's very claustrophobic and they make it feel very claustrophobic because you've got these massive walls of water on either side that could come crushing down on them at any moment. And the, there is a path that they're following, but there's all these jagged rocks and stuff coming out from the seabed. And that's pretty neat too, because you realize, okay, just walking through the Red Sea actually isn't that easy. Like they've got to go over all these rocks and bumps and they're trying to carry carts. And then there's this one image that I really want to highlight. And there's it's in the they're now in the dark because it would take a while to go to walk across the sea. Uh, so it's it's basically nighttime now, but there's lightning flashing. And as the lightning flashes, you see a, in the water, in the background of the water, you see the silhouette of a whale that is like that's swimming up and then turning around and then swimming, swimming around. And you're like, Oh yeah, this is we're in the middle of the ocean and there's just going to be sea life on either side of them. And that image has always stuck out to me because it's, it's a really great way of taking, taking this story and then just adding everything that animation can do to a make you realize some of the realism about it, but B also make that, seem fantastical in its own sense um and i think this moment does a really good job of that it also sets it apart from the famous 10 commandments movie that we all know because as good as cecil b's demille's special effects were in 1956 they ain't doing a whale silhouette coming <laughs> up to the water so yeah i and I, I think it's a really good example of the visual inventiveness that this movie has that i think a lot of people don't give it credit for because I think it's it's a very visually imaginative movie that doesn't that doesn't get a lot of talk about that. So that's my moment. It's a very good pick. Um, there's a couple of things I want to talk about there. One, I like the point you make about how distinguishing this from the live action film, because, yeah, I mean, even just in terms of the logistics of doing that, if DeMille were to try to do this visual in the 1950s it's like okay like you know thinking through like the varying degrees of like visual trickery you need to do in terms of camera tricks and like do you do like a rear screen projection thing do you do some compositing of images you know do you film do you do this like the silhouette as like an animation against like, a live action like it's a very innovative it's a very like technical complex process even doing it today with cgi it's simpler but it's still like absurdly expensive Mm -hmm. animation is very simple to draw that i don't mean to say that in a way that's dismissive of the artist's talents i'm sure like to get down to brass tacks to actually be able to draw that well is very hard but in terms of like the labor that's required there is a way that it can be rendered elegantly in animation in a way that like in live action film would be 
just not possible and even with CG animation would still be incredibly expensive and that's not the case here um the other thing I want to point out and this is maybe me bringing in my I don't know angry cynicism side but I I, I to be clear I love your moment I think this is this shot of the whale is my favorite image in the whole film by far um it is like it's just such a weird creative visual and it's beautiful and enchanting and going back to my point earlier about how like because their movies made for children they occasionally have to undercut it it does bug me a little bit that it needs to turn into an action scene with Ramses and his men storming in and it's like I would have loved just like two and a half minutes of them walking and just seeing <laughs> the creatures in the water like that's that's it I don't need like I mean it is kind of cool when they run in and then they just get drowned by a vengeful god except Ramses who gets to look on at his men drowning which is pretty hardcore but just the the visual of them walking through with like water like these walls of water suspended on either side with life clearly going on within them that's separate from them yet also so close and it's such a just sort of magical idea of a visual that I could have sat in that moment for much much longer um so I don't know that that's I guess my one like sort of a point to think about in terms of how sometimes I find my animated movies are somewhat undercut because they need to cater to kids and like maybe I should watch movies for adults I guess that's a fair criticism but I don't know I think uh that one visual is like magical enough that like you could have gone for several minutes with just that because it is really like it is really great and uh watching the scene again for this podcast is like maybe I did underrate the movie but then the chase scene started I'm like maybe not who knows so <laughs> no I, I mean I, I really excited you picked Prince of Egypt because I think it is one of the great uh animated movies of the 90s I mean like you said DreamWorks was really competing with Disney at the time and I, with my knowledge of Oscar history I'm like I think Disney competing with DreamWorks helped create the uh, animated feature Oscar finally in like uh, what mm. 2002 way too late like yeah that's a good point mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but yeah also the, the scene with the, the the moment with the whale because it really is just like a flash because like it's like a it's small at first and then the lightning flashes again and you see it bigger and I think that really highlights just the danger that these that the Hebrews are in as they're walking through the the Red Sea and it just adds perspective of how small they really are and how huge the Red Sea, yeah, these waves point. and the, the, it, it really the, it really puts it all in perspective. And I think right after that, they cut to like a, a shot of like a little, the little girl and an old woman, like the little girl's scared mm -hmm. and the old woman like kind of comforts her for a moment. Which think, is a good payback because I think when they were coming up to the Red Sea, there's a moment where the little girl like helps the old woman out. Like I think I can't remember if it's like helping her cart out of a pit or something. And then this is like her paying it back. It's like, yeah, I'm old and I cannot hardly lift anything, but I can comfort you when you're scared. Yeah, we get a little more of that storyline between that little girl mm -hmm. and the old woman kind of calls back to that. And I I think that's it's really sweet. I really mm -hmm. like I said, I really love this movie. I think it's a great great retelling of exodus i'm glad you brought up the scale of it because that's definitely something you don't really get in the the mill version um not to the same extent anyway like they the the red sea feels so massive here and they feel so tiny um i do feel i have to point out uh you know you talked about like not a lot of anime in the anime series beyblade 
It is canonical that the Red Sea was parted by a Beyblade, that that's what Moses used to part the Red Sea. Um, Wait a minute. Moses parted the Red Sea with a Beyblade. Yes, like let her rip. My kids are going to love this. You got to my kids play with Beyblades. <laughs> they, my kids are going to love this. This is, I I've, I see this pop up on Twitter every now and then. Oh, I'm boy. pretty sure when that happened in the show, I was not watching anymore. But it's just a piece of information that stuck <laughs> with me. In the canon of Beyblade, a Beyblade was used to part the Red Sea. Sadly, we don't see that in this film. It's a pretty... Uh, offensive retelling, if you ask me, to omit that detail—the crucial detail of the Beyblade. But you know, creative liberties. What can I tell you? <laughs> it is interesting though. You guys talk about this film very, very clearly competing with Disney and kind of trying to one up them in terms of like doing not a fairy tale story, although in a similar style of that, but like a biblical story and like a biblical epic. It feels like it's not just trying to meet Disney, but also one up them. And um, what ended up working for them in terms of competing with Disney ended up being a farting ogre that was sort of laughing at fairy tale convention. So it is interesting to think how history might have been different had this film sort of been the sort of crossover hit that like Shrek was, how different animation history might have been for the next 20 years, because Shrek definitely sent American animation down a certain a different path than what uh, DreamWorks was doing here um yeah for better or worse probably for worse i don't yeah, love this it... movie but i really respect <laughs> what it's trying to do <laughs> yeah i i'm trying to remember how popular it was like that was a long time ago i feel like it was still a pretty popular movie back when it came out or it was talked about but yeah i don't think it was yeah. at the level of competing with because i think what would have been out with disney like tarzan would have been coming out right after this, this was what 98 this been right the same year as mulan mulan right that's what yeah. uh yeah and the same or a year before the iron giant flopped which is a wonderful movie true and also that's really true. stands out because it's 2d animation but it's not trying to compete with disney really directly like at all like it's very much its own little thing it's trying to compete with et what if E.T. was <laughs> 20 feet tall and made of steel and could blow up a city, which is a pretty, you know, solid question to ask if you're doing a retelling. Um, but it definitely stands out in terms of like talking about like 90s animation, because uh, there was a lot of like trying to out Disney Disney and then Brad Bird over here doing his, his a boy in his robot movie. <laughs> but later he goes to Pixar and starts writing mm-hmm. the incredibles and you know he starts working for disney later so mm-hmm. does uh the director of prince of egypt oh Chapman, i believe yes right, right. brave uh, right brave. Mm-hmm. yeah the mouse always wins yeah. Yeah. can yeah. i like Eat mickey <laughs> and i like brave a lot more than most people do i i love brave i think people deride that movie a bit too much but oh, no. it gets i like it i don't think i like it as much as you two but it definitely gets like unfairly lumped in as like being like bad Pixar because it was like right after Cars 2 and like right before Monsters University which I don't think is bad but is like the sort of when they started getting really into like doing sequels and yeah so it kind of gets tossed under the bus but it's I think I think most Pixar I don't know if we've talked about this on the show I think Pixar in general are held to a much higher standard than every other West or every other animation company period because they'll put a quality work really reliably but because it's not like Wally or Ratatouille levels of good, it's like, eh, it's all right. Like if any other studio sure. made Onward or Luca, I think they would have been like showered with praise. But because it's Pixar, it's like, ah, oh, 
it's okay. We yeah. come to expect too much from Pixar. And I mean, maybe not too much, but yeah, they, they're they always, you know, top level animation and storytelling. I think, honestly, their animation, it's 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 great, but it's, it's always uh, the computer animated CGI. And I, I kind of, you know, I hold a, a fond spot in my heart for, you know, stop motion animation, hand-drawn, you know, the it feels more authentic to me, but I still love Pixar and everything they do. But yeah, I do feel like Brave kind of got lumped into this lull in the mid 2000s. But yeah. The, still, they are con- they are producing consistently great things. But mm-hmm. not one of us picked a Pixar film to talk about. Yeah, that's no, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, especially when they were like, well, I know I'm a pretty big Pixar fan too. So, mm-hmm. but I wanted to highlight Prince of Egypt because I, it feels like it's just gotten forgot about. And I know Dan, you're not a big fan of it. I am. I think it's okay. I uh, and I think I that think it uses great. its medium really well. Like I think it uses animation really well. It's a little bit like the character is a little blockier than than a traditional Disney, but I think that's just the style that they were going for to kind of make themselves look a little different. Um, but they do like really cool things with with shadows and and just composing the shot. And I think. I think the animation is great. Like I really do. I think they put a lot of thought into how it looks. It did. Speaking of uh, competing with Disney, it won an Oscar for original song, and Mulan was not even nominated, which is Hell buck shit. wild to think about. Because, <laughs> like, say we will about Mulan, "Make a Man Out of You" is like a infectiously catchy tune. Well, catchy and best song. I mean, if you look at the. Oscar nominees for best song, they're not the catchiest things. Not always. Sometimes they are, but it's just interesting though. Like, Dis- Disney often was like, especially in the nineties, like best song, like they had in the bag. Like so many years they would get score and original song. Like reliably, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Little Mermaid, like all, you know, Steel and Danny Elfman's Batman Oscars. Um <laughs> that Mulan would not get nominated at all is, and I'd have to look at the full list of nominees, but then the next year Disney would steal it with Tarzan for you'll be in my heart beating Amy Mann for Magnolia, which is just don't even get me started. I've my, my Tarzan hot takes have got me in trouble before, but so. Well, anyway, there we go. That's my pick. I think um, Dan, we'll throw it back to you. Well, I'm going to take things to, I was very classy with the snowman. I'm going to get a little less classy with Batman and Mr. Freeze, Sub-Zero, a direct-to-video spinoff of Batman the Animated Series. This was the more type of animation I watched a lot as a kid, which is to say animation where people did punching. Um, But my moment is not a punching moment. It's actually a very sort of sweet and simple moment. And it's like a spoiler for the end of the film. So if you haven't seen it, skip ahead to our next pick. But um, the plot of the film involves Mr. Freeze's uh, wife, who's in the sort of jar of liquid because she's got a terminal disease so she's kept in suspended animation there's a sort of accident and she was at 17 stab wounds in the back <laughs> yes yeah they're up to 15 um <laughs> but they uh there's an accident that her um container it's weird to describe it but like it breaks open and she's like at risk of dying so they need to give her an organ transplant and mr freeze kidnaps barbara gordon yada yada the very end of the film, Mr. Freeze is defeated and he's thought maybe to have perished in the accident. But the last scene 
it's still in the Arctic and freeze is out on crutches. His leg is broken. And it's like, it's casted up in like solid ice, which is a nice touch for his character. One, cause Mr. Freeze, but also it just makes sense. That's what he would have to use to create a cast as his freeze gun, but he's going up to, there's like a small little like outpost and there's two men sitting inside watching the news. And it's a story about Nora Freeze, who was, you know, famously thought to be dead and then was in this coma. She's, you know, their operation was successful. A donation of an organ from Barbara Gordon saved her life. And Mr. Freeze just hobbles up from the outside and he sees the news report through the window. And there's no dialogue from him, but you just see his face light up with joy, which is, you know, for a character who's dead to emotion, this is a, a not common sight. And he starts tearing up and he's so happy that his wife is alive and can live freely. And then the final shot of the film is him walking in the Arctic snow, tears down his face, tears of joy, accompanied by his pet polar bears, um, fade to black. And I love this for a lot of reasons. One, I just love the simplicity of the ending that it's, um, you know, for an action superhero adventure that has like kidnapping and all these like amazing set pieces and really feels like as a film was designed to because they had more of a budget than they would for the average episode, push their action scenes a little bit further and have more elaborate set pieces, that it ends, in fact, on this really simple, quiet character moment, um, which is, you know, a massive part of what made the series so exceptional from the get-go, was that for all the spectacle and all the over-the-top comic book nature of it, it was really focused on character and emotion um, for both Batman and, and his villains. And I love, so I love that. I love the simplicity of that. I love that it actually moves Mr. Freeze forward as a character, something that episodic and especially superhero stories in general often fall into is like, you can't really grow your characters that much. It's why a lot of the origin stories of the villains in Batman stand out because there's an arc, there's a really dramatic transformation. And then after that, it's like, they're kind of stagnant. Like Two-Face has this amazing story from Harvey Dent to Two-Face. And then after that, he's, you know, has to appear in some standard variation of that doing some other crime thing. Um, but this allows Mr. Freeze to grow. First, his wife was dead, then she was alive, but sort of suspended. And now she's like healed. She's better. She's able to live a normal life. This would end up kind of biting them in the ass when they tried to continue Freeze's story in the next iteration of the show. They really don't like what they did with this character immediately following this. But as a moment unto itself, I think it's um, a strong moment of growth. And finally, I love this because while the show technically did continue in a new iteration with uh, the new Batman adventures, it was a radically different art style. Um, it was still recognizably like the same continuity, same act, most of the same actors, most of the major actors carried over, including Michael Ansara as Mr. Freeze. But the animation was different. The style of the show was different. It had much more emphasis on the sidekicks and uh, was a little bit more like fast paced actiony. Not too much, but enough that it was a different feel. So this film, for all intents and purposes, was really the sort of final curtain on Batman the Animated Series in its classic style. And while Mr. Freeze was not the subject of the first episode, I think Heart of Ice, which was the Mr. Freeze origin story that also transformed his character from like an ice pun making C-list villain in the comics to this tragic, sympathetic figure, is the defining episode in many ways of the show arguably the best episode of the show i know a lot of batman writers have put forth it's one of the greatest batman stories ever told and the final image of that episode is mr freeze alone in a cell in prison crying because his wife he believes is dead and he's alone and batman looking on 
And I like that the final image then of the series in its original format and inception is again, Mr. Freeze crying, but now it's tears of joy because his wife's okay. And I think that's beautiful. So that's my moment. I also watched this movie so much as a kid because I had it on VHS <laughs> and it was one of the few movies I had. So sick from school or, you know, it's Christmas or it's summer. It's any event where I'm at home. Let's watch Mr. Freeze. <laughs> so that's my moment. I can't say that I've seen this movie recently, but I do seem to remember like when I was when I was like a teenager, or a kid watching these that I seem to like this one more than mask of the phantasm if i remember right like this one and maybe friend it was because i love that emotional core of mr freeze i'm not sure but friend of the show michael agrees with you he thinks this yeah. is the better of the batman animated films i do not but i i do love this one i would i don't know if i would still feel that way i'd probably have to rewatch both of them but no it's good i actually uh caught this movie just last night i had to do my research nice and i mean i mean I'm not a Batman the Animated Series fan. Not, I mean, it's not my thing, but my husband puts it on for the kids all the time. They're watching it on Saturday mornings. They love it. And, you know, I I, I love the the visual. The, I mean, it, it's kind of comic booky, but it's not. And it's very, I love how bold, it, it's a very bold looking style of animation. And I really like that. So when I watched this, I was, I was getting into it. It was good. It was good stuff. Nice. So. I'm glad you liked it. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you picked it out. Thank you. Oh, I'm always there really to is talk a, about it. <laughs> it really is a great, like, a great ending. Yeah, I like how you said that, you know, they don't have arcs other than, you know, how are they going to rob this bank this week, right? But mm-hmm. uh, it's a good ending to the character. Like, if they never brought the character back, and really, probably they shouldn't have. <laughs> well, they brought him back in the new Batman Adventures, and his motive basically... His condition worsens, so his body deteriorates far worse. So he's not able to see Nora. She remarries and has another life. So his motivation at that point was like, I have lost everything. I don't care about making money. I don't care about, you know, pursuing my own goals. I want people to suffer the way I've suffered. So like he, like there's a bit where he, uh, you know, there's like this elderly painter who spent years like creating this masterpiece and he just destroys it because and he's like, I'm, I'm too old to paint another. And it's like this idea of like, I want to take what people love the most away from them, which as a motivation, I think is yeah. like interesting in isolation. I don't like it for Mr. Freeze. Yeah, it feels like it betrays what's happening here. Yeah, but they did bring him back again in Batman Beyond for one of the best episodes of that show. And that ended up being like the final, because the, the writers have said like Batman Beyond, if anyone doesn't know, is like it's 50 years in the future. Bruce Wayne's an old man and there's a new teenage batman and as awful as that premise sounds the show is actually really darn good but the writers said like they did not want to turn the show into like two-face beyond and riddler beyond they didn't want to just do old versions of all the classic villains but they made a few exceptions and one of them was mr freeze in part because they just said because we love him and also because i think it was the villain that they probably left the most definitive stamp on so mm-hmm. there was a sense of like ownership over him that was different but that episode is like really heartbreaking and kind of brings even though they kind of messed it up originally it brings it back and closes his arc out nicely albeit very tragically so yeah because the idea of like somebody coming to the realization that the people they love are might be better off without them i mean that had that 
you don't see it too often, but it comes up in other movies and, and TV shows and stuff. And it's all, it's always like a, it works <laughs> like it emotionally. That's a very, it leaves the viewer in a really weird spot, right? Cause you're like, should I feel happy for them? Should I not? And you're not really sure, but you definitely feel something for them. So mm-hmm. yeah. it's also nice. Cause like, unlike mask of the phantasm, which has like, the most like depressing ending of a Batman story ever. It's nice that like, it's nice that a Batman story ends happily because it doesn't mm. happen that often. So yeah, Mr. Freeze Sub-Zero. It's uh, it's also a film I could have chosen a lot of like less sort of impactful or substantial moments because this is one that I just remember watching so much with my brother that we would just like quote random dumb bits from it to each other like in long car rides like there's a bit where like an old man is accosted by some thugs and his elderly wife is like myron my brother used to say that to each other for a laugh (laughs) so you know there's lots to appreciate in this there's a range of emotional experiences it does bother me though that bruce wayne doesn't have like like the whites of his eyes they're just little black pupils that that bothers me but otherwise great film what did you think of it, Allison, after watching it? I mean, like I said, this isn't my usual Batman, but I was like, hey, I was getting into it, okay? I was, like, cheering along, and uh, what was it? The one part where everything's on fire, and Freeze is like, it's broken, so he's useless, but they got to go down and save Nora. And he, like, shoots his little ray down the hallway to get rid of some fire. I was, like, yelling at the TV. I'm like, dude, give them the, the freeze gun. There's more fire down there. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm, like, yelling at Mr. Freeze on my TV. So I was I was getting into nice. it. But then he did help them later, you know, because, like, okay, you're using the freeze gun now to help them. But they wouldn't well, have needed that elevator if they had the freeze gun. Anyway, anyway. That's that a nice bit, main... too, though, I think, that, like, the ending, the characters, as much as it's, like, the hero fighting the villain through circumstances, they end up having to work together, and that's... Exactly. That's not something you see every day in superhero films either, mm-hmm. so... And I liked how they, they treated Barbara. She was, you know, she's a damsel in stress, but she can hold her own, you know, she's doing great, and she helps that, that little kid that's with them, so, yeah. All in all, a, a good good Batman film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sweet. I should have known you'd, <laughs> you'd pick a movie like this. Oh, man. I had to balance out the fact that I opened up the <clears throat> sentimental Christmas side of my heart slightly. So it's like, okay, <laughs> I need to counter this with an old familiar favorite. So it's uh, awesome. All right. Uh, Allison, do you want to go to your next pick? All right. Uh, so I picked for my second one, Paranorman, which is a stop motion animated film by Laika, which is a oh, it's a horror movie for kids so lots of fun nice. one of my favorites one of my favorites lately came out in what 2012 yeah anyway yeah, it's nice I, that you picked a stop motion i like that we're we're at least touching we our picks not be, may not be overly diverse but at least we got a a little bit of a we got, we range got a there too so there. that's nice yeah and uh, i mean honestly stop motion is one of my favorite types of animation favorite types of films i love to see and the the quality that Baika is putting out there in their films i mean it takes forever for them to make these films they're making like five seconds of animation a week it's that i mean it's that painstakingly what's the word craft that's it is handcrafted animation film they're 
Mm-hmm. I am in awe every time I go see one of their movies, and I try to take my I try to take my kids to go see them whenever I can. My kid did not care for the box trolls, and he was two, but whatever. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I'm about to put some major spoilers out for Paranorman. So if you haven't seen it, it's a great movie. I would suggest seeing it before listening to me dissect it here. Anyway, uh, so in case you don't know, Paranorman is a movie about uh, a boy who can see ghosts and he talks to them and it's you know he's not scared of them it's it's cute he's like petting little dead raccoons right next to their roadkill spot i mean it's it's funny and it's cute and there's zombies later so anyway uh but his ability to talk to ghosts kind of makes him an outcast and the whole town kind of thinks that he's the weird kid and later in the film he has to use his unique abilities to help his whole town which is famous for witch trials kind of help his town when the witch's curse comes back to bite them in the butt quite literally with zombies (laughs) anyway (laughs) so but the scene i want to talk about is uh they're doing a rehearsal for the school play for the for the town and uh in the play they're recreating the story of the witch and you know how they put her on trial and hanged her that's like the big the big dramatic the, the big dramatic line that uh, Norman has to deliver. Anyway, during the rehearsal, Norman has this weird vision, and it's not, and it's different from when he usually sees ghosts. It kind of the world starts to fade away, and he sees a different world, the past, and it doesn't really know what's going on yet. And as he's kind of recovering from that shock, that vision, uh, the the bully and his bully kind of pick this big kid that picks on him alvin puts this noose in the play around his neck and it, the noose is attached to his friend playing the tree neil and all of a sudden neil and norman they just kind of cause chaos because he's stuck into the noose and they disrupt the whole play anyway why i think this is so important and it's like it's like i said it's visual storytelling and it's kind of hinting to things to come later but you you don't you might not notice it the first time you see the the second time I I watched the movie I was had literally had to stop I was like wait a minute because it all kind of came together anyway when the noose around Norman's neck is like the first time that he is directly connected to the witch in the in the in the story of the witch in history which is likely a a distant cousin descendant that Norman is descended to maybe they have the same psychic abilities that might have made her the witch anyway that's the noose literally connects them physically in the first the first way that in the, in the film that you see that which i think is so cool second uh the way this they disrupt the rehearsal foreshadows how norman is going to disrupt the actual show when he has the real big vision in the whole in front of the whole town and he's you know screws up the play and everyone is just upset with him. His parents are mad. It's a it's a whole thing, the poor kid. And then what I think is like the scene is just it's so simply done. It's just the little the little moment of putting the noose around Norman, picking on him. It just looks like typical kids screwing around, bullying each other. And yet all these things all these things are hidden underneath. All these connections are shown in like two seconds of the movie. And I think it's just it shows, you know, a really great 
moments a really great uh just how how well written this film is and how i mean honestly the animation is one of the best things i've seen from any animated film uh, ever really because <laughs> I, I love it the, the stop motion animation of all the characters and the special effects they use how they all seem you know nothing feels like i can't tell what is animated by hand and what is you know cgi and it's just such a great movie i wanted to highlight it it's one of my favorites and i i try to show it to my kids my four-year-old does not care for it even though he loves zombies so <laughs> nice Mm -hmm. Good pick. Um, <clears throat> so I like, <laughs> it's funny. I think I like, I like the way you highlight how, despite how sort of simple and casual this feels the first time, there's actually a lot of information and importance to this moment that is easy to overlook the first time in part because of how sort of casually it's done. The other thing that stands out to me is how for as casually as like the noose is sort of thrown around it, Norman's neck how hardcore it is that you have a children's movie where a character has a noose around their neck and it's just tossed off. Like I saw in, in the notes that like Norman with noose around and I was like, okay, I was kind of imagining it was going to be some sort of like visual thing. It's like, it's a shadow that you see around him or it's like, maybe it's like through a reflection, but it's like, no, literally he gets a rope tossed around his neck and he's not hung. Like it's, he's clearly not like being strangled, but there's enough of a ghoulish visual that I'm like, I'm kind of amazed they could do this in a children's movie. Um, and that stands out and I think is, is good. As I've alluded to, I like when my children's media is somewhat harrowing, but I also, <laughs> I think there's something to be said about like, and there's a whole legacy of children's movies that are a little bit darker and a little bit more macabre that when they come out are not super successful in terms of like box office, but have a way of like the kids who do see them and click with them. It kind of just like wedges into their brain and, and doesn't let go. I mean, that's basically nightmare before Christmas was a flop. That is now an institution for how, like four months of the year from Halloween through to Christmas. Um, and similarly, like, I, I don't know if paranormal will go on to have that kind of legacy, but it, there is something to be said about these movies that, you know, maybe don't like the world on fire fully when they come out, but they tap into a darker subset of interests for kids that kids aren't exposed to as much or as frequently. So when you do find it, it is like a special find. Um, and I, I think there's, there's a lot of value in that. So I'm glad that a film of that kind got highlighted. No, I agree. I think this does have a lot of similarities to, you know, films like that nightmare before Christmas. There's, it is dark. It earns that PG rating, not G for kids. I mean, it is, it is all, it's a straight up a horror movie. It starts, you know, even the, the film starts with kind of parroting a horror movie and it's got, it's got zombies popping out of the ground in a kid's movie. It's wonderful. I love it. It's creepy. It's weird. It's funny. It's also a great movie about bullying and, you know, not becoming an angry mob and thinking for yourself. I think it's wonderful. And it shows your moment shows as well, just how much, I mean, you've got like foreshadowing and you've got all these storytelling and screenwriting elements. And it makes you realize if they're putting this much time into a movie, they, they've got to have faith in the story that they're telling. Right. And so 
you know that they put in the work to the writing because they don't want to spend you know a week on every five seconds when the, the when they don't have a solid story right for they're they're probably not going to want to do that for a basic story and so um it shows that the foundations come first right in this case the script the script comes first and you can tell that they've got they've got a lot of love for that script when they're putting in okay something that seems really simple plays into this foreshadowing and plays into that foreshadowing too it just makes you think of everything that goes behind the scenes in a movie like this yes yeah think i mean they're spending years to months and years just preparing scripts just building props building puppets building the whole world i mean every little every little detail in that you see in these movies that Leica makes not not just Paradorma, but Kubo and the Two Strings, Missing Link, all of it. I'm, I I love all their movies. I'm I'm such a dork like that. They're beautiful, and uh, everything is made by hand. It is you know or you know th- they're made from 3D printers and things like that. Everything, every little element, is thoughtfully made and handcrafted and put there for a reason. It's not just fluff. It's not just filler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, the, the the degree of effort is important too. One, I mean, on some level, part of what's fun about this movie, and I'm gonna I'm steal a phrase from uh, Red Letter Media's re- uh, review for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where it's like films that are fun to watch making ofs for, you know, where like the filmmakers explaining the process of how they do it can be as entertaining as the movie, and the ease of digital tools kind of takes that away a lot of the time, like when it's just oh, the computer did it. Not to say there's, I don't want to dismiss digital artists. I know a lot of work goes into it, but it's not as sort of intuitively interesting as like stop motion and like those things being built. And so there's a fun to be had in that, but I like the point that's made of like, because of how sort of handcrafted every little piece needs to be, inherently more thought is going into every little piece because it requires that much work. You know, like it, everything needs to be thought through really, like carefully, um, and it shows on two levels, right? On two levels, like the visual details and the animation details have to be thought through. But I think they're they're also conscious of um, using something that looks like a basic slapstick sequence, right? The fact that he's you know trying to get away from the tree and he's he can't, uh, but they they probably say you know, let's use this as a foreshadowing of what's what he's going to do later as well. So it, it's kind of meets dual purposes. So there's an economy there as well, which I think is impressive too. It's like, mm-hmm. how can we use the this as a storytelling element while also making it a fun animated sequence? Because we're putting a lot of work into it. So the most we can get out of it, the better. And springboarding off of uh, what you said about how how seeing the how-to process is just as entertaining. I think the people at Leica know that because like at the end of Paranorman, you see there's a quick little thing after the credits where you see how they build the uh, puppet character. And it all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a time-lapse thing. And all of a sudden, you know, they see the whole puppet is built from the skeleton, the little wire skeleton out. And suddenly little Norman just pops to life, wakes up. And they do that, I think, in the credits of all their movies. Just one little, a little piece. I think so. I know they do it in Kubo. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that's important, too, with regard to especially, or is maybe not important, but is especially um, useful when it's a film that's, like, for kids that's a horror movie because 
it's a way to make not to dilute the horror but to invite kids to think about these things as like make-believe which makes them less sort of like objects to be to recoil from but to sort of be drawn into like when you know that it's it's fake it becomes fun in a way and it becomes like inviting it's like it's still magic because it's like there's still a sort of degree of wonder in how you get that to feel real but at the same time um it sort of involves you in the idea as a kid that like this is something that people are making and designing and you start to understand that and that makes the horror more approachable so it's a good way to like you know slowly indoctrinate children into horror (laughs) yes or i think you slowly indoctrinate children into animation into Mm -hmm. filmmaking of of the sort and like i mean like my kid is super into origami so he you know kubo and the two strings is like great for him and you know you show kids how to how to do these things how to animate like back in when i was a kid there were specials where disney animation animating uh disney animators would like show you how they you know draw draw mickey mouse and they flip it and that was you know even just flipping two pieces of paper back and forth was magic and now that you're Mm -hmm. showing kids how they can make these whole giant puppets i mean these puppets come to life just with one you know picture at a time and now you get kids like who love to make their stop motion videos of like Lego, and that's big, huge thing now because kids they have the tools, right? You get an iPad and it's got a stop motion app, and suddenly they can do make their own movie, and and yeah, there's there's a there's an ownership of that that they can they can see people doing this on this level, and they're like, I can do that, and I think that's really cool. No, actually, what like I think it was a few years ago, my kid and I made just a five-second little animated movie with dinosaurs and some Halloween candy and things like that. And I mean, he felt ownership of it. He felt like this was his thing. He had made art, and you know, he's still making art. He's still into this stuff, and we're watching all these movies together. So, I mean, this all you know, they say animated kids, animated films are for kids, and they're not always, but I think it's great that these you know animated films can springboard kids kids' imaginations and get them more creative, you know, more than just sitting there watching it. They want to be a part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another crucial thing too, is even just the idea of like thinking about that you're <clears throat> what you're seeing is like made by someone, even if you're not necessarily inspired to make it yourself. It involves you in the viewing in a way that's a bit more thoughtful than just sitting back and being entertained you you lean in instead of leaning back and that i think is really valuable and yeah like you know animation is not always for children but certainly in in western contexts it usually is made for kids predominantly which is not inherently a bad thing um but yeah the way when when the film can invite them into the process and not just be you know noise that's really valuable and this is a good really like like in general and stop motion is a prime example of that because it is so clearly tactile it's so clearly built and constructed and that's that's great (laughs) i think one way to describe the relationship of you know kids and adults and animation is it has to it has to be compelling enough for adults but simple enough for kids and everyone has to be on the same level yeah. And that's, that can be hard to do that, you know, that's just, you know, crafting a story that can 
be compelling for adults to have all these different layers and also entertaining for kids at the same time. That's mm -hmm. that itself is, you know, a feat. Yeah, you know, especially you start animating. Absolutely. And I think especially because of the cheap way to do that and what you see often in children's animation is just a bunch of cheap, lame jokes for the parents that the kids won't get. So you'll have like a reference to like the Godfather or Chinatown or something in like a children's movie that like mom and dad can chuckle at in the theater. So they have something, but it is there's and maybe that speaks to why you like a, and I think other and like Pixar is another example of this, like their scripts are really tight solid well-structured scripts because of that necessity of entertaining two wildly different age groups and experiences where you you really need to have a strong storytelling fundamental to uh storytelling fundamentals to reel both groups in um so maybe that's also a huge part of why because i do find like like as a good example in pixar as well just like they really have good storytelling fundamentals that a lot of big movies don't right now so they yeah. often don't have to stoop down to the uh you know the jokes just for the adults yeah or you know the the, the fart jokes for kids and things like that you know mm -hmm. it's it's kept at a a higher i don't want to say higher but a level well, that's that doesn't go down into the toilet humor too much and you know which i think just shows confidence in what they're doing right it's like they have confidence in their story and they don't feel like they need to do that kind of stuff which is nice and, to see yeah and honestly those jokes don't always age very well no like, they do not <laughs> no. but you know these like, like like you said at pixar and Leica, they're not doing those as often and i think their their films will age better because of that they will are like more likely to become classics mm -hmm. yeah i'd agree mm -hmm. well, it still of... astounds me how much the uh how much the Matrix kick in the Shrek movie is just oh like, yeah, oh, like why did he do that? <laughs> anyway. It makes you cringe these days. Yeah. Um, although speaking of uh, animation movies that have endured as classics in part because of their great writing, Ian. Yeah, let's get into it. And actually, it, it has it really ties into the idea that you talked about, like has to be simple enough for kids, but still engaging for adults. And I think my moment is going to talk about that. So we are talking about 1994's The Lion King, which is our second Disney. But I think that's appropriate because Disney has a pretty huge footprint in this area of film. Literally with your scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. So, yeah. So the scene I'm going to talk about or the moment I'm going to talk about is, Muf is when Simba steps in Mufasa's footprint. This comes in what I would say is the second big scene between Simba and Mufasa. The first one, of course, is the big wheel or sorry, circle of life discussion that they have. That's, you know, pretty massive scene in the movie. Uh, but this one comes after he gets in trouble because they sneak away to the elephant graveyard and uh, and get attacked by hyenas. And so Mufasa has to rescue them and he's in trouble now. So. Um, he kind of leads Simba away and Simba's like, well, I'm getting to get in heck. And there's a moment where you see Simba's paw step into Mufasa's footprint and Simba looks down and notices just how much bigger his father's footprint is. Now, this is pretty obvious sim symbolism. Like, it's great symbolism, right? The fact that he he's just gone through this ordeal 
he was getting pretty cocky up to this point. He had a whole song about how he's going to be just in this king of like extravagance. And now things are coming, crashing back down to earth for him. And he realizes he's got a long ways to go before he's going to fill his father's shoes. That's a great one shot image, right? So we're talking about what animation can do. This visual can do a lot in just one image. It can says a lot, but I also think that it is obvious. Like it's a pretty obvious uh, meaning there, but I also think that's to its strength because just give me because this is um I'll cut that out. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> you won't. This is this is a movie for kids. I mean, it's when we're talking about great writing and that it can pull in all audiences, it can do that. But this is a Disney movie for kids. And I, I kind of like the way that Disney says kids are smart enough to get this. Now it's not, it's not like really deep, rich symbology that you got to think about and dig into like classic literature or anything. It's pretty out there. Like it's, it is obvious, but it's kind of a nice stepping stone for kids to see that images can have other meanings than just looking really nice, right? There's something behind what the filmmakers are showing you and they get that, I think. Um, and even if they don't get it right away, I think subconsciously it's helping that story along and it's helping you get into Simba's mindset. It's, it's a great example of Disney doing what they do when they're at the top of their game and doing it better than than pretty much everybody else um, at that time period. Oddly enough, this this moment came to me from watching the trailer for that remake of The Lion King. And when they they show that, I think, in the trailer of the new Lion King, the all CGI Lion King, and it triggered me. And I'm like, I didn't care about the new Lion King. I never saw it. I didn't. Once I saw the trailer, I'm like, I have, there's no need to see this movie. But that that image is like, Oh boy, that like the original Lion King, boy, that was a good movie, like fantastic animation. They knew what they were doing. They put a lot of thought into it. So that's my moment. It's a great pick. Um, I, mean, I like the point you make, like it is obvious, but I think it doesn't, it doesn't feel heavy handed. Um, although I guess it would yeah. be literally heavy handed because those paws are massive. <laughs> but the, the fact that like, there's no dialogue to acknowledge it, like, that mm -hmm. goes a long way. Like I don't find visual symbolism to be with exceptions, I suppose, but I don't generally find visual symbolism to be uh, ever too obvious as long as it's not spoken, you know, as long as mm -hmm. it's just visual, like that's filmmaking. That's the goal to use your visuals to construct your story, to construct your themes. And I think it's, it's obviousness too is important because it's not just for the audience. It's Simba. He mm -hmm. is recognizing in this moment in a very, direct physical way this idea of like i am not my father and i feel this tremendous pressure and apprehension if i can actually live up to my father which i think is essential for what makes this like top shelf disney i rewatched this a couple of years ago when i went through on disney plus and watched all the uh major theatrically released animated films from snow white up till like i think frozen 2 was the most recent one when i did this and you know, going into The Lion King, like, I think I knew, like, yeah, it's, like, a good movie, you know, it's, I've seen it, of course, when I was young, and it's a classic, but 
but then actually sitting and watching it for the first time in years and really just like watching it it's it's like yeah no this actually is as great as it's described to be and you kind of take it for granted i think um yeah. you know it's like et it's one of the like a movie that like yeah okay i know it's great and you sit down and watch it one day and you're like oh yeah no it's like really great um and this i think is a huge part of why because disney films i mean parental conflict is a big thing in disney but it usually doesn't go to this level usually it's stuff like you know cinderella you have the wicked stepmom or in you know something more contemporary to uh, lion king and little mermaid you have like you know the dad who won't let you know controlling his daughter but this is more is getting into sort of heavier questions about like legacy and living up to that and that's just such a I don't want to say it's like better than what those films are doing because they're they're not really aiming for that but it speaks to this film's level of ambition and the weightiness of the ideas it's tackling and part of why I think it still resonates as an adult because even as an adult these questions of like responsibility and living up to it and often and a lot of times living up to your parents and their expectations for you and what they accomplished and what you can accomplish are real things that people like no matter how old you are still think about and still weigh heavily and yeah to to be able to distill that theme into one image that is obvious yes but simple and powerful in communicating that is tremendous work yeah it really is no, this is, I gotta tell you, I have watched The Lion King twice today because it is my four-year-old's favorite movie. We have to watch it every day now. <laughs> but I don't mind because it's it's that good, okay? He is over there dancing to I Just Can't Wait to Be King every day and it's it's great. But this moment, when, like, when you were first, when you first invited me to talk about animation, you said, oh yeah, I'm going to choose Mufasa's footprint. I'm like, oh, that's the big one because <laughs> yeah. i remember seeing this movie in theaters at eight i was eight years old and i remember that moment where simba steps in the paw print and i i look at that paw print and my thought was oh no simba's about to get a whooping He's a <laughs> now. that's what i thought at eight years old and then like like then it, he didn't and the, it, they had an actual conversation and it you know and suddenly it turned into this beautiful father-son moment and turned into look at the stars and it's such a great scene such a perfect movie i don't care for the uh the uh new one as well my son watches that one sometimes as well so didn't see it myself I saw and it how great is james Earl jones yes. like when i rewatch the scene i'm just like he, he's what a perfect voice for for that character just i don't think there's anybody they could have picked that would have been even remotely as good no 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 one else has as good a voice of him in like history yeah <laughs> it's like him and Orson Welles that's it um and Welles was dead so you can't get him and he'd already played the greatest animated film in Transformers the movie so you know you can't you peaked <laughs> but um you know with uh Allison I'm so glad you brought up that like you normal sort of conventions of movie you're expecting this to be like a fight and then it ends up being way more tender and heartfelt and actually they feel like they grow closer by the end of it. Like they're very affectionate with each other by the end of the scene. And that also, again, separates it from like the classic animated movie with conflict with parents where it's like on some level it's forgivable because, you know, adolescents are often shitty to their parents and won't communicate well. So like it kind of makes sense, but it's frustrating on a narrative level where it's like, if you just sat down and talked, you could hash this out. And it's nice that this scene 
goes that route. Like it doesn't become bogged down in like, you know, Mufasa being like overly protective and then Simba being overly rebellious. They actually, you know, are honest and open with each other and come closer together. And it also makes it all the more heart wrenching when, Mm -hmm. you know, Mufasa is taken away shortly after. But I love that level of like thoughtfulness in the writing that it doesn't go down the sort of tired trope and cliches that are because, you know, all stories are built on cliches, but that's a frustrating cliche. And I really love the way that the film sidesteps that in a really uh, thoughtful way. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, Mufasa is a great character. Mm-hmm. I love awesome. the, the whole father-son relationship between Simba and Mufasa. And uh, I mean, how many Disney films really show a father-son relationship besides maybe Pinocchio? And mm-hmm. like, the, you know, little kid, little boys don't see that as often. Often it's, you know, little princess girls and their wicked stepmoms or overbearing dads. So that's yeah, a good that's point. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, there's not a lot of fathers and sons in Disney. No. Like this finding Nemo. Well, yeah, yeah. that was later though. And that's true. Pixar, yeah, so that's it's true. still mm-hmm. and, and Pinocchio is just a weird one. Geppetto's just like, all right, I have a son, all right, off to school. And like there's no there's not really a relationship in Pinocchio between the two that strongly. Like they have a couple moments, but it's not anywhere near what Simba and Mufasa are. Like that's a real relationship. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, like it's crucial to because people talk about the how traumatic Mufasa's death is, not just his death, but the fact that like you see his body on screen for a long time after he's dead. But it is the legwork they do with that relationship beforehand that it's not just sad because a parent died. It's sad because this parent died for this son and that loss you feel on a personal level, not just on an abstract. Oh, it's sad when a parent dies. Um, yeah, this is, uh, Fantasia might edge it out for me, but in terms of like narrative Disney, I think this is their best film. It's my favorite. Yes. I've got a, like, I was, what would I have been 12 when this movie came out? But I do, this has a pretty strong connection for me because this is the only movie I remember my whole family going to see together, like all five of us nobody else just the five of us that actually didn't happen that often it was either like you know either my mom or my dad would take us or you know my youngest sister wouldn't come or we'd be bringing friends with each other right it was but this is the only time I can think that just all five of us as a family went to see this movie together I was actually pretty rare but I it it stands out to me and I've loved it ever since yeah just I mean we attach memories to movies sometimes and you know that can help make you know the the memories we attach to them make them more personally special to us even if they're not very good movies we were like oh I remember going to see that with my dad and we went to go get ice cream afterward even if it was you know something terrible it's still something to attach to that and I think it's cool that your whole family got to go see The Lion King together I mean Weird, weird segue into that. The last movie my whole, my parents and I family went to go see was probably Toy Story 3. And even my dad was crying at the end, which I thought, <laughs> which was rare, which was great. Because, you know, it's in his 50s crying at a, at a Pixar movie. Well, luckily Lion King and Toy Story 3 are both actually legitimately great movies too. So <laughs> Yeah. I wish I could pull a story of like, I did it and the movie was like, I don't know, Flubber or something. <laughs> 
<laughs> but the sad truth is I've never seen a film in theaters with all of my family. Really? In fact, I've never seen a film in theaters with my mom. I don't think she's seen a movie in like 10 years, hmm. um, which is kind of baffling given what her son's turned out to be. But uh, yeah, I like to think that 1999 killed her interest in movies because she saw Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut and she just thought they were both so stupid. Little did she know <laughs> that her little five-year-old boy 20 years later would be like, oh, actually, those films are amazing, Mom. <laughs> Tom Cruise's best year. Um, but yeah, she doesn't... Uh, I don't remember the last film that like she would have watched in full. It might have actually legitimately been almost 10 years ago. Wow. I mean, she's caught stuff on TV with my dad. Like, she'll watch, like, I remember she texts me, she's like, oh, I just watched the end of Gone Girl. I was like, really? That's surprising. <laughs> but yeah, generally, you know. So I've never, I've seen lots of films in theaters with my dad and or brother, but never my mom. Hmm. Should take her to Avatar. I tried to convince her to, to go see The Master back in the day, and she was not having it. <laughs> I think it's because she wanted, she was kind of like, well, maybe I'll go see that Trouble with the Curve movie which is like Clint Eastwood and Amy Adams. Like, well, if you're going to see that Amy Adams movie, you should see this one too. Um, <laughs> I was unsuccessful in my campaign, but I tried. Yeah, it might have been for the best. <laughs> Listeners, what movie should I show my mom? Yeah, that's a the good last, question. The last movie I watched with her was on DVD at home. We watched The Social Network. Hmm, interesting. So, Ian, I know you'd be proud of that one. I am. <laughs> I think my dad had to go to sleep and he finished it by himself in the morning though because he goes to bed at like 7.45. So. But then gets up at like 4. Oh, there you go. You finish all the movies. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, I think we got some good picks there. Um, Awesome. Yeah. Do you guys have any last words on animation? Um... Really good range. <laughs> That's like, any last words on animation? <laughs> Just animation um, in general. <laughs> I hope it. You know, I hope the medium lives on forever. Animated movies forever. I mean, they're only getting better when, you know, you you see what all Pixar can do with computer animation. I would love to see more hand drawn animation come back more. Because mm -hmm. I mean, what the last the last time Disney tried that was The Princess and the Frog, like over ten years ago. Right. Let's bring bring it back. We miss mm -hmm. it. That was a pretty good movie. I like that film. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll just reiterate my urge for people to watch The Snowman. You can actually find the full movie on YouTube, like multiple versions as well. Like it's very easy to get. Because um, like, I again, I know I've been kind of jovial about like oh, Christmas movies suck. I don't really fully feel that way, but I do feel like this stands out as being like a unambiguous christmas movie that i also like love and there's very few of those so uh, i cannot recommend it enough i watch it almost every year excellent awesome well allison do you want to let listeners know where they can find you uh yeah i mean i i write on my own blog called the best picture project dot wordpress.com that's where you'll find it uh you will find 12 years worth of movie reviews mostly Oscar nominated movies and animation and slasher films, a little bit of everything. I'm not writing a whole lot because I'm a full-time mom of two little boys and they keep me busy because I'm watching The Lion King every day with them. <laughs> hey, you outlasted Dan and I, our blogs. That's true. That's <laughs> we, true. We've given those up a while ago, so. I mean, I, I, I just keep plugging at it. It's writing and film. It's something I love to do, combine them together. 
I respect um, you know, it. I'm taking my kids to the movies and they are loving it. I am hoping to get my eight-year-old to go see Avatar with me. Maybe nice. not this weekend, but next weekend. The, the thing is, he hasn't seen the first one. Ooh. So I got to sit him down for three hours, see if he'll <laughs> watch the first one. Because, so, okay, we went to Disney World last year and we're standing in the middle of Pandora Land. I realized he's never seen Avatar and I have failed as a parent. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I got, I have, I have to make up for lost time. Listeners can't see, but I've got my Avatar Blu ray on camera. Uh, excellent three disc comes with the different versions of the film it's it's a really nice like hefty box you know and like i think really i don't even know if i like movies i think i just like boxes because if i find a good box for a movie i'm like (laughs) i'm a happy camper i've been like stores and i'm like i don't even like that movie that's a nice box (laughs) why did the amazing spider-man have to get such an extensive blu-ray set oh you didn't did you i didn't no no (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there was I don't remember what the movie was now, but there was something and it was like a nice steel book and I pulled it out and it was like, I don't know, like Clash of the Titans or something. I was like, like not not even like the original, like the the 2010 one. And you're just like, oh, so, like you, you feel like the steel, the cold steel. And you're like, oh, what wonders could this be? Oh, so I get you. Waste of a good box. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Allison, for coming on. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. It was great. It was good to have you. Yeah. Good to see you guys. It's good that someone could choose something that was not uh 2D animation for the show. So thank you. Yeah. yeah <laughs> You're welcome. You can rely on me for that. I'll talk about yeah. stop motion animation all day if you want. Perfect. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks listeners for listening. You can find us at cinema underscore seconds on Twitter or email us at cinema and seconds at gmail.com. Uh, let us know what your favorite animated movies are. Let us know what movies Dan should take his mom to. And awesome. Okay. I think I'm sure we will come back to animation a number of times, but I hope you enjoyed it. And I guess we'll see you next week for our Christmas special. <laughs> so much as it is. Ooh. <laughs> Famous fans of Christmas films, Dan and Ian. <laughs> Got a Yuletide special coming at you. All right. Well, thanks for listening. I've been Ian. And I'm Daniel. Have a good night. Bye.